The Business of Culture, The Culture of Business, Politics, Media and Entertainment, Iconoclast, Creatives. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The fact that he's a public school teacher, she's an OBGYN, all these issues were in stark relief. And then on top of that, you've got Governor Yunkin parachuting in, throwing millions and millions and millions of dollars to try to help Siobhan Dunavant, and the voters said no. Joining us yet again, the dynamic duo of Pope and Shapiro, that's Michael Pope and Jeff Shapiro, to tell us exactly what just happened in this odd year election when Governor Glenn Youngkin lost the chance to capture both chambers of the House. We see Abigail Spanberger, the congresswoman running for governor. She announced her candidacy. LeVar Stoney, the mayor of Richmond, is going to throw his hat in the ring as well. So much to discuss. And the bigger question is, what can the rest of this country learn from Virginia going into 2024 and beyond? So please do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from up and down and around the Commonwealth of Virginia are Michael Pope. He's a reporter with Virginia Public Radio and multi-time author. And Jeff Shapiro, veteran political correspondent with the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Together, they're kind of more infamous than Evans and Novak, Sacco and Vanzetti, (laughs) Hall and Oates. Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. How are you, gents? It's Pope and Shapiro back with us. How are you? Thank you for having us, Robin. We are recovering from the election, and I'd like to think I'm the Daryl Hall of this combo. <laughs> I could go for that. Uh, take me to this. Hold my hand. Hold my hand with this, because you know we're blessed in this state of having these odd year elections. We saw, you know, what Yunkin told us a year after Joe Biden won the state by ten points. And the Republican shining light, Glenn Youngkin won. Maybe there was a third way past MAGA. You know, we have them on odd years. And here we are in 2023. And Glenn Youngkin did not gain an extra chamber of the state legislature. In fact, he lost it. And maybe that'll dash his chances to be a presidential spoiler in the meantime. But what, pray tell, did Virginia just tell us? Jump on. Maybe Virginia is telling Glenn Youngkin it's time to... It's time to trash the vest. Uh, hmm. We've uh, we've seen that uh, the governor's popularity, which is meh, if you will, uh, was not transferable to Republican candidates, particularly in the in the districts up and down the I ninety five and and sixty four corridors that are were competitive, and where the governor tried but could not round up the most prized votes, those of suburban women, many of whom were very alarmed by the uh, disruption of uh, Roe through the Dobbs decision, periling abortion rights in this state and others. And the governor's attempt to defang the abortion issue for Republicans by saying, yes, I do believe in limits. Let's cut this off at 15 weeks, but make allowances for um, abortion in the case of rape 
incest or to save the life of the mother. The governor and Republicans only seem to talk themselves into a corner by taking that position. Is it a matter, Michael, of the dog finally catching the, the you know, the, the pickup truck? Like, you got this. You got a supermajority of the Supreme Court, a reversal of Roe v. Wade. But now it's kind of time to pay for it, if you will, because if you read the wisdom from this week, Kentucky's Democratic governor held on in a ruby red state. You saw uh, judicial gains for Democrats in Pennsylvania. Was this effectively kind of a an off-year mandate vote against Roe v. Wade's overturning? Yeah, well, it was definitely a reaction to the Supreme Court decision. I think there's no question about that. You know, in terms, your question was about what message are the voters sending? And to answer that question, I would look to the Richmond suburbs in Henrico, where there was a Senate race between incumbent Republican Siobhan Donovan and the Democratic challenger who was- my district, incidentally. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, then you're very familiar with the politics here. The Democratic ch- challenger was Skylar Van Valkenburg. Um, and so there were two things going on in that election that I think are really instructive that tell you about kind of the mood of voters. One of them is about abortion and the other is about book banning. So um, both those were issues in this race. Siobhan Donovan supported a bill that she says would have increased parental control. Critics say it would lead to book banning. Scholar Van Valkenburg is a public school teacher, so this was an issue that resonated in this campaign, and there was a lot of discussion about the consequences of banning books. Um, So that was a key issue in this campaign. In addition to all of the abortion issues, the potential of rolling back existing abortion rights was played in this particular district in a way it didn't elsewhere because Siobhan Dunavit is an OBGYN, and so... Mm. The fact that he's a public school teacher, she's an OBGYN, all these issues were in stark relief. And then on top of that, you've got Governor Yunkin parachuting in, throwing millions and millions and millions of dollars to try to help Siobhan Donovan, and the voters said no. Jeff Shapiro, what about this uh, much bandied about Yunkin 2021 playbook? I mean, I know that was in the thick of the pandemic. People were in a lousy mood. There was a combination of you know, going back to school, uh, irregular kind of mask mandates, Zoom schooling, and parents were looking for, you know, that message really resounded of parental empowerment at a time that everybody felt so powerless. And that didn't really carry this time around, whether it was kind of in transgender bathroom legislation, county by county, it was more eclipsed by kind of the broader mood and, and people showing up for what, a backlash to the Roe v. Wade being overturned? Uh, There was certainly a good deal of hostility, if not outright anger, over the Supreme Court's reversal of of Roe. But I think there there were pivots as well in public opinion on education issues. You know, Governor Youngkin very deftly captured, you know, the frustration and fears, particularly of school parents in 2021. They were all worried about their kids again going into lockdown and remaining, you know, hunched over laptop computers in the dining room. Those who we're fortunate enough to have sure. laptops. So a lot of these, right, these right. parents voted for Yunkin, figuring, hey, let's give this guy a chance. Uh, public opinion polling, and again, it's just a curiosity, um, suggests that um, you know, parents uh, are, uh, are much friendlier now to, uh, to educators and teachers and administrators and, and you know, believe a certain measure of, uh, of, of deference and authority should, uh, you know, should be theirs because they know best about 
fashioning curricula and selecting textbooks. So it's a subtle but significant change. And it means that the the these fighting words, parental rights and 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 thwarting student endangerment, just didn't have the resonance in these legislative elections that they had statewide. It's important to note too: this was not a statewide election. These were we saw 140 local and regional elections, and there greatly shaped by personality, the familiarity that voters have or don't have with these candidates and incumbents, many of whom still run, even in suburban-dominated Virginia, as your friend and neighbor. And, you know, Robin, just to put a coda on that discussion about parents' rights, I want to focus your attention on Loudoun County. This has become the centerpiece of the culture wars uh, in terms of parental rights and what's going on in schools. If you look at the election results of the school board election in Loudoun, you will see that the Democrats now have a majority on the Loudoun County School Board. Candidates endorsed by Democrats, that is, now have the majority on the Loudoun County School Board. And then in neighboring Fairfax County, you've got 100% of the school board members are candidates who are endorsed by the Democrats. So Republicans and conservatives did have some success in Goochland and Roanoke County. So there's somewhat of a mixed message there. However, Loudoun, the centerpiece of the right-wing culture war in terms of parental rights, we now have Democrats taking control of the school board in Loudoun. Your neck of the woods, we've talked about this before, Michael, in Northern Virginia, I'm thinking, you know, Alexandria, Arlington, Tysons. It's known kind of internally, we joke that it's kind of a different state. Jeff and I have discussed before where that intrastate Mason-Dixon line is, where you cross what bridge, what river, what part of, I don't know, Southern Fredericksburg, where it suddenly becomes the North and ceases to be the South. But I get the impression from this and what's happened in kind of the suburbs of Richmond, you described it, Henrico County, Goochland, other areas, that there's kind of a kind of a creeping Northern Virginiaism, or is that more on and off depending on the year? Well, you know, actually, it's it's interesting you talk about the influence of Northern Virginia because the last time Democrats were in power, we had a Speaker of the House from Fairfax County and a Senate Majority Leader from Fairfax County. The next Democratic majority that we're about to see in January 2024 will have a Senate Majority Leader from Fairfax County, but a Speaker of the House from the Hampton Roads area. So it's true that Northern Virginia, you know, continues to play a very important role in Virginia politics, but it's probably in the future, at least the immediate future, going to be a somewhat diminished role. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined by Pope and Shapiro. I love having them on. We had them once at the University of Richmond Live, which I look forward to doing again. Michael Pope is, of course, a reporter with Virginia Public Radio, a multi-time author. I've seen one of your talks, I think, on C-SPAN recently. And Jeff Shapiro is a veteran politics correspondent with the Richmond Times Dispatch. He's seen many things in the RVA, well before it was ever called the RVA. Jeff, speaking of Richmond in this, well, we come back to Yunkin. There are, of course, idiosyncrasies of being Virginia governor. You can't run again unless you wait out a term. You can't have two successive terms. There were hopes that he could come in and be spoiler, an alternative, a well-financed, backed alternative to 
Donald Trump and the others in that race are not really getting traction, whether it's DeSantis, maybe Nikki Haley. But does this leave him as a lame duck? Uh, it would seem that uh, the, uh, the the Yunkin presidential striptease is over, that uh, he's been yanked off the stage uh, by events most recently, this embarrassment, and there's no other word to describe it uh, at the legislative level. The morning after the Republicans lost control of the General Assembly, remember the Democrats held the Senate and tipped the House, they did lose a seat in, in the Senate, folks on Glenn Youngkin's favorite cable channel, that would be Fox, were describing this defeat, Fox's words, as an epic failure. Hmm. Uh, and as I think we were discussing, you know, earlier in, in this, uh, this this segment, there was clearly uh, uh, there were clearly limits to the transferability, if you will, of of the governor's su- supposed popularity. I'm of the view that you know the strongest argument for national candidacy by a Virginia governor, the only governor in the country who cannot seek consecutive terms, is to have a successful term as mm. governor. Uh, and, you know, if that were the case, Yunkin might be able to set himself up for, say, 2028, or on leaving office in January 26, when Mark Warner will be up for re-election to the Senate, perhaps, if this is an interest of Yunkin's, standing for Congress. I'm still trying to understand. I thought that he was able to turn out certain uh, red districts that were not fully hearted for Donald Trump in 2020, that there was some magic he had at turnout or maybe analytics or deep mining to see how you can get people out, how you could squeeze more red out of a purple state in order to eke out, what was it, a two-point win? And how much of that still applies to anybody looking to win this state, whether the Electoral College or governor? Yeah, the governor was elected with 50.6% of the vote. I mean, it was a it was a squeaker. And one of the things that uh, the folks in his political operation have been pointing out following uh, this legislative election is that, you know, there were Biden carried districts in which um, Republicans uh, outperformed uh, the Democrats. And that ultimately it came down to about 1,400 votes separating uh, the Democrats and continued Republican control of the House and a Republican majority restored in the Senate. One of the things that the governor did in this campaign. He was a convert on early voting. You know, his view about early voting was somewhat, mm. you know, Trumpy, that uh, there's no substitute like showing up on an election day because, you know, that way people can't tamper uh, with the vote. His position changed. He said, these are the rules. We, sh- we need to play by them. It was, you know, his objective to generate additional Republican votes. I think one of the things that early voting may have confirmed this go-around is that it's really not as much about finding, mining, and harnessing new votes as it is front-loading a vote that you're going to receive or you're likely to receive on election day itself. 
had a wild card for you, Michael Pope, in your neck of the woods. Adele McClure, who's been on the show before. In the Virginia House of Delegates, she won District 2, which makes her the first black person and first Asian person elected to the legislature from Arlington County. For those who don't recall, we had her on several years ago. Adele was uh, food insecure when she uh, matriculated at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. She rallied around the opportunity. She found help. She came from a childhood of instability and poverty and being evicted and evicted and evicted. And she became student body president at Virginia Commonwealth University and then was a chief aide to then lieutenant governor and then dropped out from that and then found her own voice. And was a star just born in Arlington County, Michael Pope? Yeah, I think so. Adele McClure, obviously very impressive person. I will say she ran unopposed. So there was no one else on the ballot there in Arlington going up against Adele McClure, um, which actually puts her in league with a very large number of candidates who had no opposition and not just incumbents. I mean, Adele McClure is one of the non-incumbents who had no opposition. In fact, I think it was like one out of four candidates, um, one out of four races were totally unopposed. And Adele McClure is one of them. Arlington, of course, leans very blue. That particular district leans very heavily for the Democrats. It's plus 55 points for the Democrats. So Republican in that district in Arlington would have to overcome a 55-point disadvantage, which is probably why you didn't see any Republicans announcing in opposition to, to Adele McClure. I want to step back and take it to my former congresswoman, Abigail Spanberger. It used to be the Virginia 7th, and we've had her on the show a couple of times. Uh, I bumped into her a few weeks ago uh, in Henrico County. It was interesting when she did win the first time in 2018, Jeff Shapiro. I'm sure you've covered this quite closely. She ousted the Freedom Party, I guess the Tea Party insurgent, Dave Bratt, who ousted Eric Cantor, who was, I mean, that was thought as the biggest upset in US political history, I believe, when it happened in 2014. And then here she is, the first woman to ever win that seat, which had been Republican, I think, going back to 1971. And now, even after you know winning a, a difficult election and a kind of a redistricted swath, she's going to run for governor. And she seems to be a celebrated figure among the kind of the winnowing moderate wing of the Democratic Party. She's been outspoken before as to kind of how you have to not use the word socialism or defund the police. I always joke with her when we had her on the show, like, what do you say to AOC at the uh, Capitol Hill vending machine? And she seems to kind of be antipodal to that. What are your thoughts on her gubernatorial push? Well, one of the things that's important to, to note about Spanberger's success as a congressional candidate, these districts, the old 7th and the new 7th, include lots of red territory, but they are anchored with increasingly blue suburbs. Hmm. Her first go around, that was Western Henrico County and part of Chesterfield. Uh, in this, the new 7th, that includes Prince William County. But one of the things that, that Spanberger does very well is directly engage voters in what is widely viewed as hostile territory, whether in the old district, Louisa County, or in the new district, Madison County, places where the Republican votes tend to run two to one. This is an important feature of her gubernatorial candidacy, that not only does she appeal to the Democratic base for the most part, but 
because of a measure of independence, which includes, for example, opposing Nancy Pelosi, not once, but twice for speaker, she has some appeal with independent voters and maybe the few remaining centrist Republicans who are having increasing difficulty voting for candidates of their party. In Virginia, despite the continuing suburbanization, which is fueling this increasingly blue response, elections are still pretty much decided in the middle. Spanberger understands that and uh, intends to harness that in this gubernatorial campaign. By the way, one would note that this has been a very well-orchestrated rollout. No sooner than she declared her candidacy, and it had been expected, uh, than she was picking up lots of important endorsements. So mm. all of the other, the three other Democratic Congress people from Northern Virginia endorsed her. Former I, I read or I heard somewhere that she was generous with her. How does it even work with your personal political war chest kind of seeding chits or you know, how does it even work? Like you, you don't expect that a, someone who's running for office every two years who I thought kind of sort of barely won the last time around after she was redistricted has an abundance of clout and money to seed other kind of fledgling candidates and win their support going into a gubernatorial race. Well, remember, money is the mother's milk of politics. And Spanberger, a couple of years ago, had indicated that she was going to be helping Democratic candidates at the local and, and regional level and setting up a pack that would, with which she would hoover up dollars that she would then steer to candidates. Uh, she was also generous with her time and uh, was showing up in lots of places, uh, clearly uh, w with the intention of feeding the curiosity about her presumed gubernatorial candidacy. By the way, I would note that among those early endorsements she has received is one from Ralph Northam, the former governor, whose home base is in Hampton Roads, that southeastern corner of, of the state, which can be very competitive and where a, a Northern endorsement uh, still has, uh, has some cred. It's also an area of the state where there are significant numbers of black voters. And that is a, a slice of the Democratic coalition that Spanberger's opponent, LeVar Stoney, the mayor of Richmond, will be avidly pursuing as a man of color himself. I got to tell you, hold on, Michael, it's crazy how this world works. I'll never get tired of this story. One minute I'm at a Hanukkah party, I think it's 2016, in Henrico, and there's a whole latkes thing with all the parents inside, and I met this woman named Abigail. She went by a different last name. Next thing I know, she's running for Congress in 2018. What was she, a CIA case officer, or had some foreign policy chops? I go, I couldn't even remember meeting her. Next thing I know, she's kind of flung into kind of, you know, national consideration with this. And in the span, no pun intended, of six or seven years is already kind of seeding a statewide and nationwide following. Yeah, well, that statewide and even national following is premised on her being such a centrist. I mean, this is actually something that she likes to advertise about herself is her ranking in terms of being a moderate being someone who's not extreme, being in the center of the political spectrum. And I'm actually kind of curious about how that might play in, you know, a, a Democratic primary. So, I mean, to become the governor of Virginia, the first thing you got to do is win the Democratic primary. And I'm curious 
to see how that would play out in terms of, I mean, be, you know, she's essentially running a general election strategy of being a centrist before we even get to the Democratic primary. Does that leave her open to challenges from the left? Can can Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney challenge her from the left? Can someone like House member David Reed challenge her from the left? I think we're going to have to see when that Democratic primary happens in June of 2025. Do hold that thought. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and tell your friends, is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. A reminder that we have Mayor Pete, uh, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, coming to the University of Richmond to do Full Disclosure Live. The show, alas, sold out, I think, in less than two hours. Uh, but we are going to have a wait list for tickets. The show is at Maudlin, the Maudlin Center, on December 1st. Please follow at richmond.edu for wait list information and all my social media handles, Full D Radio. We are rescheduling Steve Inskeep of NPR for January 31st to talk about his book on Lincoln and keeping the country somewhat united back during the Civil War. Uh, look for ticket details soon, again, at robbins.richmond.edu. If you're just joining us, my guests are Pope and Shapiro, the dynamic duo that you hear every week on Radio RQ, our home station, Virginia Public Radio. Michael Pope, of course, is a reporter and author with Virginia Public Radio. Jeff Shapiro, a veteran political correspondent with the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Jeff, you've been in Richmond for more than 40 years. Am I wrong? Life without parole, babe. Wow. Used to have smoking in the newsroom back in the day and typewriters, and I, I, I don't know. Oh, yes. I remember the press room at the Capitol. The ceiling was this lovely shade of, shall I say, nicotine yellow. And the original Pearly's Greasy Spoon, I believe, right? Well, the snack bar at the Capitol was called Chickens. It was, um, its name uh, was uh, borrowed from its proprietress, whose nickname was chicken. Her given name was Louise. Uh, the reason she was called chicken, I've always objected to this, was because she had a cleft palate. Oh and as a God. consequence of uh, her cleft palate, uh, she produced, uh, hers was a voice that uh, sort of recalled uh, a chicken's. I mean, it's amazing how much this city has changed. Even when I, you know, I was I was first visiting here twenty years ago, you would have smoking sections in dining rooms or be open smoking. The fact that this was profiled in the New York Times as a prominent LGBT friendly city. Lavar Stoney, the mayor of Richmond, who's a stone's throw from the Capitol in City Hall, uh, he's going to be running for governor as well. And I'm interested in how you would describe, I don't know, is it a proxy battle of Team Spanberger and the apparatus, the machine that's backing her, and the Terry McAuliffe machine that produced and is backing LeVar Stoney? Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting campaign for a number of reasons, one of which is the experience of the candidates. Uh, LeVar Stoney has pretty much made his life in politics. You know, as a college kid, right out of college, working for candidates, working for state parties, working for elective officials, working for elective officials in, in somewhat delicate and hyper-political positions. LeVar Stoney was governor 
Terry McAuliffe's, uh, if you will, the high high priest of patronage. He was secretary of the Commonwealth, uh, the person responsible for doling out political jobs, running for mayor. And by the way, I think this is important. In the city of, of Richmond, having been elected not once but twice, with really less than 40% of the vote. Now, that's not because the field was crowded. Uh, it, it had a lot more to do with this kind of funky mini electoral college uh, with which uh, the city of Richmond elects its, its mayor. A mayor has to carry five of four districts to take office. One of the things that LeVar Stoney has been doing over his two terms, trying to land some brand new, bright, shiny object, something that uh, he could then take on the road as a, as a, a measurable example of, uh, of the success of his mayoralty. And uh, there have been three tries so far, all unsuccessful. First was a downtown redevelopment program that was pushed by the local oligarchy that would have included a great big new arena for sports events and concerts and that sort of thing. And now we have had two, count them, two citywide votes on whether Virginia, whether Richmond, that is, uh, should become a host to a casino. Both went down in, in flames despite the enthusiastic support of the mayor. By the way, in the first referendum, it was as personal a campaign as it could get. Uh, the mayor grafted his political apparatus uh, to the campaign, the yes campaign for the casino with his, the mayor's campaign manager running the show and it was uh, defeated. This go around, the mayor uh, kept a much lower profile. Uh, one hears that, uh, and certainly I think the, uh, the anecdotal evidence uh, supports this as well, uh, that the mayor and members of council are not wildly popular. And so it, it was probably to the advantage, in the end it wasn't, of the yes casino campaign uh, that uh, these elective officials stay on the sidelines, excuse me. But as a result, this second referendum is uh, looking very much like a referendum on the LeVar Stoney mayoralty and maybe not necessarily a positive referendum. And you know what else LeVar Stoney also has to overcome? And Jeff Shapiro, you you hinted at this when you went through his biography. He's never really had a job outside of politics. And guess who has? By contrast, Abigail Spanberger was a CIA agent and very successful. She had a very successful career before, she, you know, in a specific field that makes her kind of an expert before she even entered politics in the first place. So that's a contrast that benefits Spanberger to the detriment of LeVar Stoney. Yeah, she was a uh, criminal investigator for the Postal Service before she joined the CIA. Uh, her uh, rollout video uh, paired with her, her formal announcement included a photograph of Spanberger in uh, you know, tactical gear, 
prone on a uh, pistol range, uh, you know, uh, squeezing off a, a few rounds. It's been a while since a, uh, a gubernatorial candidate has been uh, photographed or recorded on video uh, handling firearms. I remember the first time that happened back in <laughs> 1981, Chuck Robb, a Democrat, yeah. was elected governor, uh, there in his shirt sleeves, wearing a tie, squeezing off six rounds from a revolver on a uh, police firing range. The message then uh, with Chuck Robb, just as it is now with Abigail Spanberger, is that uh, these are Democrats who are not soft on crime. Well, in 1981, Chuck Robb famously had kind of a centrist pivot where he changed the direction of the Democratic Party away from the kind of liberalism of the 1970s into a much more buttoned-down Reagan-era version of the Democratic Party and made it way more moderate, you could even say conservative. So that was really good politics in 1981. I'm curious, though, about 2025, is it possible that that's too centrist for the Democratic Party and, you know, might be giving an opening to somebody, LeVar Stoney, or somebody else to run to her left? You know, it's interesting. She famously chewed out. Uh, she was very animated on that postmortem call the morning after the 2020 election, when it was apparent, you know, in that week following the 2020 election that, you know, Biden plausibly won the White House, you know, still votes had to be counted, but uh, there were seats that were lost in the House and the House was lost. And that she came out and said that you should never say anything to the effect of defund the police. You should run the heck away from that. I mean, is there room in this Democratic Party in 2023 for a kind of a strong law and order kind of, you know, gun squeezing centrist? You know, I, my my sense is that that Abigail Spanberger, in, in no small measure because of her her electoral success, and I dare say I think there's a measure of gender appeal here uh, as well, will prove to be a very strong candidate within the, the Democratic primary, and that uh, you know she's going to be pulling votes that um, aren't necessarily logically in some people's minds, you know, the kinds of votes that a, a right, Spanberger right. candidate would pull. So uh, I don't know that, you know, she comes to this campaign at a particular disadvantage. And also, let's not forget, if Spanberger is leaving her congressional seat, that ramps up the politics for, you know, who fills that seat. And, you know, we've already got Jennifer Wexton stepping down and not running for re-election. That opens up that Northern Virginia congressional seat. Then so Spanberger, you know, will likely vacate her congressional seat. That's two open Democratic seats where you're going to see lots of candidates, dozens potentially of candidates jumping into those congressional races. Right now in 2023, ahead of the election in a year in 2024, who does a an Abigail Spanberger or LeVar Stoney want campaigning uh, alongside with the thumbs up? I mean, is a Joe Biden, for example, with his low numbers, his anemic numbers, toxic to a Spanberger? Does that help a Stoney? Do they all know to kind of keep their distance? As you told me, Jeff, which I'm fascinated, I'm not a politics correspondent, but Nancy Pelosi had the self-awareness enough to know that a Spanberger would win points by not voting for her speakership. That, you know, you as a party could whip up a, a majority and a consensus by allowing for those optics. 
Yeah, there's a good deal to be said about sort of the the, the moderate packaging of, of Abigail Spanberger. I, I challenge one to kind of examine her her voting record. She is, as I guess the, the preferred term uh, uh, now would be progressive as they come, when it comes to things like voting rights, LGBTQ rights, you know, articles of faith among Democratic voters. However, I think it's important to note that in Virginia, and this is pretty much the case around the country, the largest single block of voters are the baby boomers, uh, my Mm. generation. And I think it's uh, safe to say, looking at baby boomer voters within the the Democratic Party, that they tend to be as forward-thinking as Gen X, Gen Z, and millennial voters. Uh, mm. They tend, however, to be more incrementalists. Uh, they're they're accustomed to uh, you know a more um, sort of baby steps when it comes to accomplishing those those big big leaps. Uh, mm. This is uh, one of the reasons the Democrats got back in the game in Virginia, starting in 1981 with Chuck Robb's victory for um, governor. Now, however, I would note that within Virginia, if Gen X, Gen Z, millennial voters are lumped together. That's two-thirds of the electorate right there. But unlike baby boomers, these younger voters are not nearly as disciplined, uh, not nearly as reliable, not nearly as regular voters as those older baby boomers are. And they don't have as much allegiance to a specific political party, which actually once again, benefits Spanberger because, you know, she is seen as the person who transcends party. How much, and you guys get asked this a lot, how much should anybody be paying attention to national polls a year out? I mean, notoriously, Barack Obama's numbers were so dismal, I think, in 2011, and he kind of handily beat Mitt Romney. This is ancient history. There was a postmortem that nobody talks about now. You saw the numbers for both Trump and Hillary Clinton. Well, it was not at all clear that Trump was going to win the nomination in 2015. They they both had low approval ratings. And there's this article of faith right now that Joe Biden is way too old and there's just too little support among, you know, millennials and Gen Z to kind of get him over the top. Regarding polls, I thought there was an interesting observation by David Brooks in the New York Times last week. Uh, he was citing an observation by a, a political analyst, I think, of the large D Democratic persuasion. So partisan affiliation notwithstanding, I still think the point was, and it is sound and valid, I think, that people who are responding to questions from interviewers in public opinion polls these days, given the increasingly polarized nature of our politics, they're not voting in those polls, they're vetting, they're getting it out of their system. And so let's get into the thick of the presidential campaign. When um, in the case of Joe Biden, uh, the record might be a little clearer. The economic bounce back may be a bit stronger. Donald Trump's uh, difficulties, legal and otherwise, in sharper focus. Maybe we will uh, see uh, these polls, uh, instead of reflecting the anger and frustration of voters, reflecting their concerns and their preferences uh, for navigating those concerns. 
But you know who we won't see much of in 2024? That's Glenn Youngkin. So Mm. he, of course, was frequently named as a potential candidate on the presidential stage, but his embarrassing loss in Virginia, I think, pretty much ends that. It's worth taking a look at his pack in the spending that he did, which he raised a record amount of money and used it to benefit specific candidates. And his win-loss record is pretty good, actually. I would say it's kind of half and half. So he spent about a million dollars to help Siobhan Donovan. She lost, so that's a million dollars down the drain. But then he spent half a million dollars to help Tara Durant. She won. He spent a quarter million dollars to help Juan Pablo Segura. He lost. He spent a quarter million dollars to help Danny Diggs. He won. He spent $200,000 to help Karen Greenhouse. She lost. He spent $200,000 to help Emily Brewer. She won. So, I mean, his win-loss record is kind of all over the map in terms of of where he chose to make his investments, although it's worth pointing out that his biggest investments lost. But it would have to happen that he'd have to run the table. I mean, for him to get control and push through the 15-week ban, which I'm not sure he was wholehearted about. They kind of prevaricated and danced well, around it. What are going to do? I mean, so he's in this position where he has to be anti-abortion. And so his choices are 100% ban, which would be toxic, or figure out some other way that might resonate with voters. And they had some polling that showed 15 weeks actually polled pretty well. I mean, in terms of rolling back abortion rights, it was the best. it was the best thing you could possibly sell. So, I mean, for that to happen, I mean, we're talking about water under the bridge at this point, but then mega funders would have to show up the morning and after and say, this is our guy. This is our guy who can take us national. You don't want to have a dead weight, you know, concrete affixed to your boots thrown into the bay if you're attached with somebody like a Donald Trump. Uh, This is our guy. And then various things would have to happen. Other people would have to drop out. And then there you go. Glenn Youngkin is your antidote to Donald Trump. And maybe he does it in time for a debate. But I always thought that that was the longest of long shots. Well, to your point, you know, one has to wonder how was and could Glenn Youngkin deal directly with Donald Trump? If there was any evidence that Glenn Youngkin was getting traction, Glenn Youngkin was a threat to Donald Trump, there's every uh, indication that Trump would have craftily, artfully, as only Donald Trump can dispense a put down or two mm. that would just, you know, reduce uh, Yunkin in 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 st- size and stature. That uh, the verb that- is to Jeb or to Jeb or to Marco someone with what you did in 2016. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's worth remembering. I mean, in the haze of the rapidness of all the news that hits us, Trump actually did try to give a nickname to Yunkin, and it was like a racially insensitive kind of way of looking at his last name, basically. Um, yes. The, the um, former president just said, uh, pronounced the governor's last name as Yunkin. Pause, mm. Trump said. It sounds Chinese. Oh. So- I mean, in closing, in the few minutes we have left, I do want to kind of keep it on Youngkin because maybe he can resurface somehow after 2024 and 2025. But we've repeatedly heard after Romney that so many death knells for the kind of country club, sweater vest, private equity conservative, even the person that kind of seems to match that mold, even though he was in private equity, a a softer spoken, softer side of Sears, Jeb Bush type are the various people that private equity and venture capital has brought out of the woodwork to try to 
you know, run primary against more Freedom Caucus people. Is it just an anachronism? I mean, as the GOP completely, this GOP today could not see itself congealing around a person of that of that archetype. Well, Jeb Bush, you know, had a record of accomplishments he could point to as governor of Florida. What has Glenn Youngkin um, actually achieved? I mean, a, part of it was just his background. I think. You know, I forgive my cynicism about this, but frankly, uh, you know, among um, the strongest selling points for Youngkin's candidacy for the Republican nomination, and then as the Republican nominee, is that he really didn't have much of a record. There wasn't a lot to attack. Uh, there weren't excited utterances about banning abortion or or stripping people of uh, firearms. There were, you know, references to this uh, procedure that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court allowed and under Roe and, um, you know, that maybe is uh, performed to excess. And as far as something like firearms rights were concerned, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm a lifetime member of uh, of the NRA. Uh, he, and Romney also shot vermin, right? There you go. <laughs> there you go. go but, the, but the point is that there was enough about Yunkin that was, if you will, still diaphanous, you know, still unformed, uh, that it, it, it made him a, a, a difficult target. And pair that with his communication skills. He, the governor, shows well. He says his piece with conviction. He would be a tough, he was a tough act to follow. He says it with conviction, and you're right that he really does know how to work a room. I've seen this in action. He's actually exceptionally talented in terms of people skills. The problem is that doesn't translate when you lose elections the way he just did. How is this going to work out in the playbook or whatever you can extrapolate from uh, Virginia, Kentucky, the various other smattering of elections that largely you know, the Democrats put great spin on in the following week? Are you going to see abortion on the various polls? I mean, even that that could potentially help at the very top of the ballot and Joe Biden, who seems to need a lot of people to get to the polls, maybe for other motivations in order to kind of maybe, I don't know, look the other way and check the Democrat at the top. There's no doubt that, that that abortion rights will remain a big issue. And just tailoring it to, you know, our home state, Virginia, and Michael and I have discussed this uh, as well. The Democratic legislature that's seated in January can begin taking the first steps towards creating a constitutional protection for abortion rights. And under Virginia's procedure for doing so, the governor doesn't have a hand in it. There's nothing he can do to stop it. And if it's all timed properly, it can go on the ballot um, at a point in which it might, you know, engender greater enthusiasm for for Democratic candidates. And and there's an an additional point here that's worth pointing out, which is that process that Jeff Shapiro just laid out demands a series of elections that will also be about abortion rights. So the congressional amendment process means that you have to pass it once and then you have to have an election intervening it and then pass it a second time. So that's the the General Assembly passes it and then there's a state election, an odd year election, and then there's another General Assembly vote and then it goes to voters. That means that 2025 will also be a referendum about abortion rights and then it'll go directly to voters in 2026. And so we're going to have a series of elections that will all be about 
about abortion rights. Throwing a wild card at you just in closing in the couple of minutes we have left, is there another state that's going, I mean, to, to your mind, is gonna you're going to see the Virginiafication of XYZ? Texas has been thrown around for the longest time. But if you go back, as you, as you well know, Jeff, Virginia was red for a long time, and then the, the Senator Webb's election and things, and now it's generally known as a purple state. I mean, you do have the idiosyncratic off-year gubernatorial elections, but are you looking at the Virginia template on kind of another state that is similarly changing demographically with the suburbs and exurbs and the swapping of kind of uh, you know non-college educated blue-collar workers and uh, college educated suburban moms? What makes the, these trends, these trends favorable to Democrats so interesting in Virginia is that Virginia Democrats to run the board statewide only have to win a, a relative handful of, of jurisdictions. Um, you know, along that urban suburban crescent, there are roughly from, you know, Virginia Beach up to Richmond on up to Northern Virginia, there are a dozen localities with populations of roughly 200,000 to 1.2 million. They all tend to be uh, pretty democratic. I mean, at times they can be, you know, Republican friendly, but uh, it is possible uh, for a Democrat to win those 10 or 12 jurisdictions and the rest of the state can go Republican. And guess what? There aren't enough state votes left in the state for the other side to catch up. Robin, to your question about other states that might be following the similar model of Virginia's recent history of being a red state that moves into being a purple, if not blue state, I would point to my native state of Georgia, which you know, was obviously a Republican state for many, many years. And then you got Democrats winning statewide elections. Um, they not as many as they want to win. Of course, they haven't been able to win the governor's race yet, but I think that could be on the horizon sometime soon. Wow. Michael Pope and Jeff Shapiro, the dynamic duo. What, what do you prefer of the three? I mean, I call you the Hall of Notes of uh, Virginia politics. I mean, I kind of liked Evans and Novak. I thought that was good. What did you call Evans and Novak? I don't know if any of our listeners remember who they are. I, I certainly grew up watching them. You mean <laughs> Errors and Nofacts. Errors and Nofacts. Sacco and Vanzetti. Oh, gosh. Uh, Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko. I really appreciate it. I love having you on. And as you know, you're always welcome. Remind us when your uh, uh, segment appears on Radio IQ, our home station, every Friday morning. Every Friday morning on your local NPR station. And Friday afternoon. Uh, yeah, Friday morning, Friday afternoon on the local NPR station across Virginia politics. And your byline, of course, uh, Jeff Shapiro in the Richmond Times-Dispatch. You could always catch Jeff. I always love bumping into him at uh, the Westwood Fountain, the Westwood Diner near the University of Richmond, where he's taking meticulous notes. I'm, I'm grateful to know you. I'm grateful that you still uh, sully your reputations by coming on my show. And I urge you to come back on. Thank you for having us. Talk to you soon. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly and Kim Zaninovich, our live show producer. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers everywhere. The link, please subscribe, is fullDradio.com. Again, fullDradio.com. A shout out to our radio listeners across the great Commonwealth on Radio IQ, WVTF, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like us on your air. Another 
Reminder that Mayor Pete Buttigieg is coming on Full Disclosure Live on December 1st at the Maudlin Center at the University of Richmond. Steve Inskeep has rescheduled to do Full Disclosure Live on January 31st at the U of R. And we have a lot of other exciting, honking live shows planned for the spring. So do follow on my socials at handle Full D Radio and catch me every week on both NPR's Here and Now and MSNBC. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.